0: everyone. How's everyone doing? Enjoying yourselves? Getting fed at this incredible smorgasbord? I have, I have been enjoying it. I've been enjoying sitting at the feet of some, some great teachers, and I really appreciate you being here for, for the second session of mine this morning. Appreciate your interest. You, you may recall that uh, yesterday when we started this, uh, I began by talking about um, what a struggle it is for Christians to figure out how to relate politics and faith. Because we see so many disturbing models of how politics and faith interact. We cringe a lot of the time. We, we see the way politics hijacks faith. We see the way uh, faith, is, faith is used as a, a way of manipulating constituencies to vote a certain way. And it just, it's troubling. But, but underneath all that really is an issue of power, isn't it? It's an issue of, of how we, we have got to protect ourselves to not be susceptible to these uh, corrupting models of power. And we've got to start taking seriously uh, the way the cross has to define the way the church thinks about, participates in, and exercises power. Amen? And uh, we have a predecessor in this in David, because what, what I appreciate about David is, is he had this same struggle. Uh, there were times when he seemed to do a, a good job of wielding power in a godly way. And then there were times when he botched it so badly that it had long lasting repercussions. And so he's relatable to us in that sense. He's, he's a good path forward to Jesus because we see him not only do it well, but do it poorly. And so he's, he's a little bit more of an inviting starting point, I think, for me anyway. He's a more inviting starting point. And I learned both from his successes and his failures. And so we looked yesterday at some, uh, some interesting points in the story of David that we find in First and Second Samuel to see ways in which David related to power and related to God. And talked about his his struggle with dealing with that, that very difficult balance of relating politics and faith in, in, in a healthy and appropriate way. So what we want to do today is we want to take a look at this from a, a different vantage point. Because this, this tradition about David has been woven throughout the Psalter. It has been woven throughout the book of Psalms in a, in a fascinating way. So that... What, what served the purposes perhaps of, um, to a certain extent, propagandistic purposes in Samuel and historical purposes and theological purposes in Samuel, serve liturgical purposes in the book of Psalms. And so what happens when you take this tradition about David and uh, the, the uh, events of his life that are documented in Samuel and they become sometimes the headings for these Psalms so that it gives these Psalms uh, kind of a context. So I want to talk about the, the place of these Psalm headings in the Psalter, how that in the, in the Psalms final form, in, the, in this final edited form in which we have the book of Psalms, David has clearly been given a major role and what's going on there? What, what role was David playing in Israel's liturgy? And how should we understand that? And how should we understand the way the Psalter is wrestling, not with power now, but with powerlessness? And that's really the interesting thing, because David is now uh, featured in the Psalter is one who had power and lost it. And there's kind of a question mark about what now? And so it's an interesting, uh, different place from which to see David and to ask the kinds of questions we're asking. But uh, the Psalter is not shy about talking about these issues of power in the context of worship. The Psalter is not shy about raising uh, political issues in the context of worship. But I think it, I think it encourages us to do it in, in a healthier way than what we typically have seen done. So we're going to look at it from that perspective. If you'll bow with me, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time, and then we'll start to, to jump into this. Father in heaven, we're grateful again for this event, for the many speakers who have devoted time to come and to share with us and for the wisdom that they, that they have to offer. I'm grateful for uh, the wisdom that I have gleaned from their teaching and pray particularly your blessing on our session this morning and that your hand would be upon me to guide me with wisdom as to what I say. And uh, for these uh, good people who have, who have come that you would open their hearts and minds And that we would grow together in an understanding of how to be be better disciples of Christ in this area of politics and power. How to be more faithful in the way we participate in these aspects of our culture in such a way as to advance the kingdom of God and not just our political agenda, And we pray, Father, that you would, your spirit would give us insight uh, by means of your interactions with David as to how we can improve our exercise of power. How we can be more cruciform in the way we participate in the power that you have delegated to us and be more faithful in, in using that in ways that are a blessing to others and beneficial to your kingdom and beneficial to the church. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to uh, I want to begin by uh, drawing your attention to um, a hymn that I, I particularly like, uh, or at least I like the poetry of the hymn. Uh, the music it, it could be rewritten, but but as far as the uh, the poetry of this hymn, which was written by John Greenleaf Whittier, uh, we know it as "Dear Lord and Father of Mankind," and. Uh, there are three stanzas in particular that kind of caught my attention as I was thinking about what we would be talking about today. And I just wanted to draw your attention to it. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in our rightful mind. and pure lives, thy service find in deeper reverence praise. I love that line. Reclothe us in our rightful mind. See, this is this is an interesting thing about worship, an important thing. Worship restores us to sanity. Worship is the antidote to our delusions of grandeur. Wouldn't you say? That's, that's an important fact, isn't it? Worship reminds us of of where true power belongs. Worship reminds us of the source of all genuine, legitimate power. And it reminds us of the proper exercise of that power. That's what worship does. And so it's it's a worship is is one of the is one of the healthiest ways of addressing this issue of power in politics and faith. It's, it's to start by, first of all, recentering ourselves and, and undergoing that kind of Copernican revolution where we realize that the universe does not revolve around us or our political party or our nation. It revolves around God. It revolves around Yahweh, the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. Right? And so Revelation 4 and 5 is kind of the end point of this of this trajectory that we're starting, where we see these concentric circles of praise that radiate out from the center of God's enthroned presence in the Lamb that is, that is there, where you get the sense that the gravitas of God is drawing everything into an orbit around himself. I mean, that's an extremely orienting and centering kind of vision, isn't it? Uh, but it's a vision that has its origins in the Psalms. And when it, when it has its origins in the Psalms, David in particular plays an interesting role and, I'll, and that's what I kind of want to focus on. It's, it, you, he goes on to say, "Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our striving cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress, and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace." I like, I love that language of having our striving cease, and uh, our ordered lives confessing the beauty of God's peace. You see, when when we when we wrestle with this issue of power and politics, and we recenter ourselves around the sovereignty of God, it does have a remarkable remarkable ordering effect on our disordered lives, doesn't it? And he says, breathe through the heats of our desire, thy coolness and thy balm. Let sense be dumb, let flesh retire. Speak through the earthquake, wind, and fire, O still, small voice of calm. I love this, this first line here, breathe through the heats of our desire, thy coolness and thy balm. Boy, we get heated when we talk about politics, don't we? In fact, when it comes to politics, generally speaking, we generate a lot more heat than we do light. <laughs> and we really need it to be the other way around, generate more light and less heat. And it's, it's a serious issue for our churches because if, if your experience is like mine, you, you see this happening, Ours churches are dividing over political loyalties that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And it's for that reason that I kind of want to draw us back to these texts and draw us back to, the, to, to David as kind of a figure of one who similarly wrestled with this as David kind of prepares the way for Christ, who, um, who shows us how in the, in the purest sense, in the perfect sense, uh, of how to, how to get this right. So I want, to, I want to start by talking about the role that David plays in the Psalms because... You, of course, you have, to, you have to understand that the book of Psalms, it's pretty clearly, in fact, it's one of the most, it's one of the clearest examples of an edited book of the Bible that you can find. Uh, because, you know, if, as, you're, as you're looking through the Psalter, you come to Psalm 72, and you find this, uh, this final verse is, is interesting and a little puzzling. When you look at verse 20 of Psalm 72, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And yet, as you continue reading the book of Psalms, what do you notice? There are more prayers of David to come, right? And so what you can see here is, is that there is, there is embedded in the book evidences of earlier editions of the Psalter, right? So, so we're, we're looking at a book of the Bible here that has, like, just like our hymnals, right? Great songs of the church, faith and praise. They go through several editions, don't they? Well, this, this Hebrew hymnal went through a number of editions. And you can sometimes see the marks of it within the text. What I'm wanting to, to, to illustrate for you here is that Certainly the psalms that are collected in this anthology of praise that we call the Book of Psalms, they were written at various times by various people in response to various circumstances. But as a hymnal, as we have it in its final form, the Book of Psalms is post-exilic and the headings of these psalms uh, have likely been added later than the psalms themselves. uh, Based perhaps to a certain extent on tradition, How reliable that tradition is, I can't be entirely sure. But I'm not too concerned about that today. What I'm mostly concerned about is what is the message that the final editors of this hymnal wanted to communicate by giving David such a prominent role in the headings, uh, a much more prominent role in the headings, of course, than he actually has in the Psalms themselves, although he does feature within the body of a number of these Psalms. Because a certain message, I think, is being sent David is being used as a kind of model in the Psalter. And I think, it's, I think it's fascinating in and of itself to pay attention to that. But this tradition comes from uh, the story that we know from First and Second Samuel, because there are certain things we know about David from the story that, that suggest him, that commend him as an appropriate patron of worship, an appropriate patron of uh, worship music in the Psalter. And we think, for example, Particularly when it comes to power, that there's this wonderful text, this wonderful story about how David came to acquire power over Saul by means of his worship. So you think about 1 Samuel chapter 16, which is the text where we we begin to see the transition, the transition begins to be made uh, from Saul's leadership over Israel to David's. And we're told that uh, David has been anointed now by Samuel. And we see that uh, in verse 13 of 1 Samuel chapter 16. And no sooner does that happen than we read this in verse 14. Now the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Look, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it. And you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Listen, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and Yahweh is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Interesting interesting introduction of David, isn't it? That, That Saul, now, who has demonstrated his inability to submit to Yahweh, He has demonstrated his inability to accept the proper relationship here, where Yahweh is the suzerain and Saul is the vassal. That's how this is supposed to work. But Saul can't really do that. He tries to be suzerain himself. And so, as a result, he loses uh, the divine endowment, the divine blessing of the spirit that equips him for leadership. But an interesting thing happens. In place of that, God sends a different kind of spirit on Saul. And, of course, there's been lots of discussions about what is this? What is going on here? And is, is David some kind of exorcist uh, who plays the, the liar and it, uh, it drives out this like demonic force? And, and I think that's really kind of that's kind of an imposition of the New Testament onto the old. Because what, what I really think is going on here in New Testament terms, if you if you want to make a New Testament parallel, what I really think is going on here is that the Holy Spirit departs Saul as an empowering presence And it comes back to Saul as a convicting presence. Because this spirit comes from God, right? And theologically speaking, we know that the spirit that proceeds from the Father is which spirit? The Holy Spirit, right? So in New Testament terms, if you want to think of it that way, this this might be the Hebrew Bible's way of saying what Jesus talks about in his farewell discourse, right? The spirit will come and the spirit will convict the world of its abuse of power. And so what Saul Saul is really experiencing here, I believe, is the Holy Spirit trying to compel him to give up his throne and surrender to to Yahweh's new anointed one. In other words, this spirit wants Saul to do what Jonathan will do so beautifully in chapter 18. Do you remember what Jonathan did after David's uh, defeat of Goliath? He gave him his tunic. He gave him his robe. He gave him his sword, right? And of course, when I was in Sunday school, probably like you, I was taught that this is an example of sharing. Right? What a a great example, of of course, because they were trying to teach us kids how to share, right? No, 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 listen. But but when when you grow up, you've got to realize something. Jonathan isn't sharing anything. He is surrendering everything to his Messiah. That's what he's doing. He is taking all the signs of his princely status. He's taking all the symbols of his right to succeed his father. And he's laying them at David's feet. And he's saying, look, I just want you to know. I can tell that you are going to be the one to succeed my father in ruling Israel and not me. And I want you to know up front that I am good with that. You're not going to get any resistance from me. And he lays down his sword, says, I'm not going to resist this. I give up my inheritance to the throne. And we thought that conversion stories only happened in Acts. Right. But Saul didn't do that. Saul viciously held on to his throne. He viciously held on to his power. He could not accept the fact that he might be eclipsed by someone else that God raised up. Right. Right. And here's where Saul and David have very different approaches to power. Saul never willingly gives up the throne. It has to be be pulled from his white knuckles, doesn't it? Jonathan, however, surrenders immediately. And it's a very powerful uh, uh, distinction between Saul and Jonathan that continues to to work throughout the rest of Samuel. But you see that what's interesting here is that this, this spirit that comes upon Saul that I, I, I suspect is the Holy Spirit trying to convict him and bring him to the point where he can do what Jonathan does so readily. Um, he never responds to the spirit with repentance. And so it just becomes a burden to him. It just becomes a tormenting experience. The only thing that seems to soothe it is David's music. And it's, of course, it's out of this tradition that, that David comes to be associated with the psalms, and, and no doubt because David composed a number of psalms himself. So we have, uh, we have that. Then later in the story of Samuel, we have David uh, demonstrating enthusiastic worship. And so he, he has this reputation as an enthusiastic worshiper, and, and as such is an appropriate model for uh, the ancient Hebrew hymnal, as one who knew how to, who, who knew how to worship God with reckless abandon, Right? So we don't, uh, we're not too eager to have very many Davids in our worship services, I don't think. He's a little too charismatic for us, I, I suppose. But you can see in this description of 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 6, verses 12-15, and this is an interesting chapter, when it, again, it, and power is very much in the background of this text. Because there are two attempts to bring the Ark of God into Jerusalem. Do you remember this? There were two attempts to do this. What happened in the first attempt? Uh, Uzzah, right, well this is is what happened, okay, first of all, they put the ark on an ox cart and transported it that way, tried to get it into Jerusalem by that means, and of course when when they they reached a certain point and the ox cart started to shake over the rough ground, the ark of the covenant started to shift and was about to fall, and Uzzah put his hand up to, to prevent it from falling and zap, right? Uzzah is uh, is taken out and David is upset and Yahweh is upset and they're upset with each other what went wrong here Disobedience, disobedience but part- what kind of disobedience in particular now, I want you to think about where have we where have we seen the ark transported on an ox cart before Never. yeah there was there actually is an incident for where it's done the Philistines. The, the Philistines I want you to notice that David transports the Ark the way the Philistines do, not the way Israelites were instructed to, right, using the poles. So it's very interesting here that that, that David is beginning to imitate the practices of the neighboring nations. But this is the more important point, I think, is this. David desperately wants the Ark moved into the city that he has chosen as his capital for what reason? Nope. Legitimization of his power. He wants to turn God into his campaign manager. He wants God to be his political hack. He wants God to. He wants this symbolism of how God is underwriting his rule, and God doesn't do that. And so this whole this whole political parade featuring the Ark of the Covenant. With, with Yahweh supposedly holding Vote for David <laughs> Right, <laughs> right? Um, God's not having it I want you to think back for a moment To something that Joshua learned In Joshua chapter 5 Just before they were about to face Jericho in battle Do you remember that That figure that appeared before Joshua Um decked out in armor, with sword drawn, ready for battle. And Joshua is a little unsure, and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And the, and the simple answer, right, I, I can't help but think of Karl Barth, nine, right? It's like, no, neither one, right? I'm not for you or for your enemies, because Yahweh doesn't take sides. He is the side. <laughs> the question is not, are you God on our side? The question is, no, are you on mine? Hmm. And so that, that kind of, this is the problem with I think the way the Ark first enters Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter six is, David has improperly reduced God to um, a political hack, reduced God to someone who is supposed to bolster his reign. And so God has to really help David reframe the way he's thinking about power and kingship because this is not the role that Yahweh plays. So um, in the second attempt to bring the ark in, it is carried and not brought in on an ox cart. So first of all, they they start carrying the ark properly because now here's, here's why this is important. You kind of have to think about the symbolism of the ark. The ark was the footstool over which there was an invisible throne upon which sat Israel's invisible God, right? So what Israel imagined as she saw the ark being transported by the Levites, by the poles on their shoulders, she was was envisioning a sedan chair, which was typically the way that you honored ancient Near Eastern monarchs and you demonstrated their majesty and their sovereignty and, and your submission to them. You lifted them up and you carried them on their sedan chair. And so when the ark is being carried in its proper way, what is being emphasized, what's being symbolized? The kingship of Yahweh, not the kingship of David. The kingship of David is not emphasized when the ark is carried properly, the kingship of Yahweh is emphasized. You see the difference? And so they're carrying it the proper way and David has adopted the proper posture. And the fact that David is is essentially in a loincloth dancing before the ark with joy means that he has divested himself of what? Every sign of his royal power. And he dances like a servant before his master. Very different entrance in the second attempt than in the first. Do you see that? But his enthusiastic worship which seems to here be an indication that David has resumed his proper posture after having mistakenly tried to make God his campaign manager, demonstrates precisely the kind, of, um, the kind of worship that Israel needs if she's going to maintain the proper relationship between faith and politics, the proper exercise of power under Yahweh's governance. Right. So that's, a, that's another text that I think speaks powerfully to this. Uh, of course, David's association with the temple and its liturgy, as we know from the Davidic covenant that is outlined in 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 7, as well as the statement in 1 Chronicles 16, 7, where he establishes the, um, uh, the music and the choir for the, for the temple. All of this uh, leads to this, um, this recognition and this, this featuring of David in the Psalms as one who is a great patron of worship, And a great model. And so what we find is, is that the the book of Psalms, as we have it in its final form, has really been infused with a lot of David. Particularly through the headings. And uh, in the the traditional Hebrew text, which is usually called the MT or Masoretic text, but in the traditional Hebrew text, 116 of the 150 Psalms have some kind of heading. Now, there's even more than that in the Septuagint, so the Septuagint has actually added more, and there are some fragments of Qumran that, that would differ from each of these traditions and which psalms have which headings and, and even how many psalms there are. But let's just focus on the traditional Hebrew text right now, which is what our English Bibles are based on. Out of that 116 psalms that have some kind of heading, 73 of them consist or contain the phrase of David. So that really... Uh, That significantly highlights David uh, at the beginning of of, uh, almost half of these psalms. So what we see here is some editorial shaping that creates a liturgy designed to cultivate hope in Yahweh's fidelity to the promises he made to David, despite the experience of Deuteronomic curses. Now let me just explain that a little bit to you so you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. So you might recall that I've already suggested that the Psalter, the book of Psalms as we have it, is post-exilic. It's after the exile. We know that because there are a number of the Psalms that reflect Israel after the exile. Or Judah, I should say, after the exile. So um, David then becomes a very interesting figure because there is no Davidic king after the exile, right? And this is precisely the point. We can talk about David now because David is one who, like the rest of Judah, is without power. And so what does David do now that he has been stripped of this power? What does David do now that the the abuse of power by David's descendants has been fully exposed, fully critiqued by Yahweh, judged and punished in the form of this exile? Where does that leave David and where does that leave Judah? Judah and will they ever be empowered again do you understand this is the question that that this that this worshipping community is asking because they feel very disenfranchised they feel very abandoned by god they feel very uncertain with regard to whether they can trust the promises of god because their understanding was that david would never fail to have a descendant seated on the throne isn't that right isn't that the impression you get from reading second samuel and yet here they are even after being back in the land, and what is is obviously missing? Two things are obviously missing. A temple and a Davidic king. Now, they eventually get a temple built, though it's not much of one, right? But guess what never happens? Guess what they don't see happen? They don't see a Davidic king rise up to reign over them like they expected. And so this... This is a crisis for this community of faith. Is What's going to happen to this Davidic covenant? What's going to happen to this promise? And so the, the Psalter, I believe, has been edited in such a way under God's inspiration to cultivate some hope in the fact that Yahweh will somehow fulfill his promises to David despite the fact that the curses of Deuteronomy 28 have rested on us and we can still feel their effects. And so one of the interesting things about the book of Psalms is that you get a sense that Part of what creates the crisis of faith in the book of Psalms that Israel is is worshiping her way through is is an acute tension that she feels between the Sinai covenant on the one hand and the Davidic covenant on the other. And these two covenants seem to be at odds with each other in her post-exilic experience. Because on the one hand, God made these promises to Abraham and to David that the land would be theirs in perpetuity and that David would never cease to have a king reigning over that land. But then the Deuteronomic curses indicated that they could, in fact, lose that land and that even the leadership, were they to be unfaithful to Yahweh's covenant, would be severely punished. So now the question is, how do these two covenants fit together? Right. And I think the book of Psalms is trying to work through that theological crisis, which is why, by the way, there, there are two interesting uh, factors or forces that shape the Psalter. So how many books are there in the book of Psalms? It's divided into books, right? How many five. books? Are, there are five. Why five? What does that correspond to? The Pentateuch. Right. Yeah. So the, the Psalter is reflecting, in a sense, the Mosaic Covenant by taking on this, this five Division. And it's a division that, that, that seems to be there in the final editing of the Psalter because there are doxologies at the close of each of these books. It's not just, not just your English Bible saying, let's just, let's just I don't know, at, at, at chapter 42, let's start book two. Right? No, that's not what's happening there. There's actually a doxology at each of these junctures that suggests where these books cl- uh, begin and end. So you've got, uh, the the Torah is shaping the Psalter in one sense, right? And then it's interesting, isn't it, that you have Torah Psalms that are strategically placed in the book of Psalms, right? The very first Psalm is a Torah Psalm, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of the ungodly. Instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That's a Torah Psalm, right? That's about the, the virtues of God's law. And then Psalm 19 and then Psalm 119, now that's a psalm on steroids right there, 176 verses of praise of God's law, right? That is the, that is the monster psalm of the Psalter. It's, it's an acrostic on steroids, eight olive lines, eight baked lines, it's, a, just a, it's monstrous. It, just, it dominates the Psalter just out of its sheer length, right? So there's a clear emphasis on Torah in the Psalter. And not only that, but who do we encounter when we get to Psalm 90? Moses, what's he doing here? Right, this is the only psalm attributed to Moses, mm-hmm. and I, and I think it's strategically placed. I think the fact that it occurs at the very beginning of Book Four of the Psalter is extremely important because it, that means that it follows, obviously, Psalm eighty-nine. But when you think about what Psalm eighty-nine is about, Psalm eighty-nine is about the utter failure of the Davidic dynasty and its total loss of power. Look with me for just a second to see this because this is a, I think this is a really interesting feature of the way the book of Psalms is laid out. But the last few verses in particular of, of, uh, of Psalm 89, beginning in verse 38, are very powerful, speak very powerfully to this whole issue of David's abuse of power and the abuse of his descendants. Because it says, but now you have cast off and rejected you are full of wrath against your anointed you have renounced the covenant with your servant you have defiled his crown in the dust you have breached all his walls you have laid his strongholds in ruins all who pass by plunder him he has become the scorn of his neighbors you have exalted the right hand of his foes you have made all his enemies rejoice you have also turned back the edge of the sword uh, the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle you have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground you have cut short the days of his youth you have covered him with shame, Silah. Now, all of that is clearly uh, lamenting what? The, the failure of the Davidic kings and their ultimate demise. The, the cessation of the Davidic covenant. The, uh, the, well, not the cessation of the Davidic covenant so much as the cessation of dynastic succession from David onto his descendants. And then it goes on, verse 46. How long, O Yahweh, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Uh, Clearly an allusion to the Davidic covenant, right? In 2 Samuel 7, he said, "What, what happened to that? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Yahweh, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen and amen. Now, see, that, that verse 52 is the, precisely the kind of doxology that tells you that you're at the end of a book in the Psalter. Now, look what happens with book 4. So, what's just happened? Psalm 89 has said, What a disaster! The king in whom we had placed all our hope, the human king in his dynasty in which we had placed all our hope, is gone. Hmm. Note to self. Don't put your faith in human power structures. Note to self. Don't put your faith in human leaders. Don't think that they are the answer to your problems. Don't think that it is by their means that the kingdom will come because it will surely not. Right? Right. Israel learned this the hard way. Judah learned this the hard way. That's happened. So what's what's going to happen to us now? We're in exile. We don't have the land. We don't have our Davidic king. We don't have the temple. And the, the, the feeling is, the sense is, we're done for. God has finally washed his hands of us. We finally went too far and there's no future for us. And then, whose voice do we hear? Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. We've been here before, haven't we? Was there ever a point before when Israel was on the verge of destruction, convinced that she was done for, and then someone stepped between her and God and interceded? That's happened before, hasn't it? And it happened before when Israel did what? Worshipped an idol. Idols can take many forms. It can be a golden calf. Or it can be a Davidic king. And Moses again steps into the gap between Yahweh and Israel and prays, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your cider as but yesterday. When it is passed, it's a watch in the night. And on and on, Moses goes begging Yahweh to preserve Judah and her captivity and restore her to her land. And the interesting thing is the majority of psalms in Book 4 of the Psalter are what are called divine kingship psalms. And they have this refrain, Yahweh Malach, Adonai Malach, right? It's the Lord reigns. Precisely because Israel needed to remember that her king is really Yahweh. Not David. David was merely supposed to be a symbol of God's kingship. David was supposed to point to Yahweh as the, as the true king and merely function, as Adam did, as, a, as an image of that king, right? An image of, of Yahweh's kingship. But... While David may have ultimately succeeded in doing that, his descendants did not. And David didn't always either. And as a result, the Davidic dynasty had to be removed so that Israel could once again remember that Yahweh is her true king. So might be something the church could, uh, could stand to re- remember as well. So uh, David and his dynasty, as you can see, becomes a significant theme in the Psalms. And what I have for you here is that these are, these are all of the places in the Psalter where David is actually mentioned within the body of a psalm, not in the heading, but actually within the body of a psalm. And you can see that there's a number of places: One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15 places. So not overwhelming, but uh, a good representation. But the vast majority of them are where? Right here in Psalm 89. Because Psalm, what Psalm 89 does is, Psalm 89 brings us to that, to that crisis point in this altar where the Psalter where the central question, uh, the, central, the central issue that is generating all this lament, is this crisis of faith that has been perpetrated by the fact that. Um, God's promises seem to have failed, that God seems to have reneged on his promises to Abraham and David in the exile. And this leaves the community completely, as Brueggemann says, disoriented and unsure how to proceed. But that's exactly where God wants them, because now now he can start from the ground up and rebuild a proper faith and a proper understanding of power And uh, it's particularly in these, in what we call seam psalms. These are the psalms that occur at the end of one book and the beginning of another, uh, where this Davidic theme uh, plays out. So between Psalm 41 and Psalm 42 for book one. um, Then, let's see, between Psalm 72 and Psalm 73, uh, between book two and three, and so on. These psalms that occur right here at these seams where the books are are formed uh, carry the weight of this, uh, this substructure, this narrative substructure that traces the rise, fall, and reestablishment of the Davidic throne throughout the Psalter. Uh, but the key central point is right here at Psalm 89, where uh, we were just reading. We find the, the final end of the Davidic dynasty, and it never returned. Dynastic succession does not resume after this. So, whatever God is going to do to keep his promise to David, it's not going to be done through dynastic succession going to be done by some other means, by raising up a new David, right? And that's that's eventually where the Psalter will go. But for the time being, the Davidic dynasty is defunct, and Psalm 90 uh, brings Moses back. And Moses enters in at this point, because when did Moses lead Israel? Moses led Israel at a time when Israel had what? No land, no temple, and no king. And that's right back where God wants to take them. A new wilderness experience to kind of remind Israel that God is the one who sustained her when she lacked all these props that she has become entirely too dependent on and that only by the loss of them is she going to find out again that God is sufficient in himself, right? What, what will we have to suffer the loss of before our faith is renewed in the sufficiency of God, I wonder, Right? And, um, well, let's not, too, let's not think too much about that, because that could get uncomfortable pretty quick, couldn't it? <laughs> right? But this, this, this idea, this popular idea, the statism, that, that seems to be so, so seductive that the government will solve all your problems. Right? That's an idol, isn't it? That's an idol. And we should learn from what the Psalter is doing, that that's something we've got to really guard against, is that, that, that kind of dependence on human power structures, which ultimately debilitates us and corrupts us. All right, so what I think is going on here with with David being featured so prominently in the headings of the Psalms and in these particular Psalms within the body of them is that David is being presented to us in this hymnal as a a model of post-exilic piety as well as a symbol of messianic hope. Because what you see here is that David and Israel have both been stripped of power in the Psalms. Um, they're both forced to acknowledge Yahweh's kingship and submit to his discipline and trust his mercy and his fidelity for whatever the future may hold for them. And the fact that, that David underwent this kind of experience so many times in his life with God makes him a good model for worship for Israel. Because he was, um, he was exiled more than once, wasn't he? He was a fugitive from Saul, and then later he was a fugitive from Absalom. So David knows what it is to be on the run. He knows what it is to be displaced from familiar surroundings and familiar comforts and familiar sources of support. And when he was out on the run, who did he depend on? Yahweh. So David, David came to power by learning how to live in powerlessness. David, at his best, allowed his experiences of powerlessness to inform his exercise of power. And this is what Israel, I think, is being invited to reflect on with regard to the David tradition as she worships her way through it and kind of views David as a model of post-exilic piety, someone who knows how to uh, survive powerlessness until Yahweh should should once again seek to restore her. All right, so the headings um, in the Psalms that reflect some incident from David's life are the ones that I have pictured, oops, I didn't mean to do that twice so quick. Are the ones that I have pictured for you here uh, Psalm 3, 7, 18, 30, 34, 51, 52, 54, 56? These are, these are specific uh, <clears throat> vignettes from, from Samuel that are um, embedded in the headings of these Psalms that, that just suggest a, a potential historical context that might have inspired the Psalm. But what's interesting is how many of them have to do with David's struggles. With competing power, right? Like uh, fleeing Absalom, um, being delivered from enemies, and Saul, uh, the dedication of the temple, feigning madness before Achish when he was when he was uh, trying to avoid being killed by Saul, um, the confrontation, Nathan's confrontation with David, and of course, famously in Psalm 51, where his abuse of power is confronted and exposed and condemned, and he uh, he asks something interesting in this psalm. Remember, he says. Um, Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. What do you think David is thinking about when he says that in Psalm 51? Assuming David really did write Psalm 51. Just for the sake of argument, let's say he did. What would David be thinking about? Saul. Saul. Because we were reading, we read earlier, didn't we, that in in 1 Samuel 16, we, we read this Saul had this horrible experience of the departure of the Spirit of God and his return to him as a convicting, tormenting spirit, trying to get him to repent, I believe. But Saul's stubborn refusal to do so simply made it a, a hellish experience, right? And, and David says, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to have that same experience. I want, to, I want to repent willingly and readily and not have to undergo the kind of torment that Saul underwent. Um, So you can see, uh, and then it continues with Psalm 57, where we have David fleeing Psalm again. Psalm 59, where Saul spies on David. Psalm 60, David's victory over the Transjordan. Psalm 63, we have David in the desert of Judah. Psalm 142, David flees Saul. Now, just as an interesting observation, um, uh, a lot of Psalm scholarship has been rather dismissive of these psalm headings because they say, well, they're not, they're not really original to the psalms and, and therefore they shouldn't be taken too seriously. And I understand what they're saying. But the fact of the matter is, in the final form of the text of the Psalter as we have it, they're in there. They're, not, uh, they're, they're actually part of a psalm in the Hebrew Bible. They're, they're actually one of the verses. And I think for that reason, this thing is going on without me in it. Mm-hmm. I think for that reason, we need to take them more seriously in terms of the function they play in the final form of the book of Psalms. Does that make sense? And so let, let me encourage you, don't, uh, don't just kind of bulldoze past the, uh, the headings of the Psalms. They're, they're there for a reason. They're, they're part of the canon as we have received it. And uh, the final editor of the Psalter put them there because there was a theological point to be made. And I think we, we, uh, we have an impoverished theology of the Psalms if we don't give credence to the role that David is playing in these headings. Does that make sense? Particularly when it, when, it, when it highlights David's struggle with power because that's where Israel is when she's singing through this hymnal. Does that make sense? Right. Um, now the five books of the Psalms then, <clears throat> which of course are inspired by the Pentateuch, but each of them actually uh, kind of highlights a particular phase of David's own uh, rise and fall. So we have, for example, in book one, there's, a, there's kind of a dominant motif of the Messiah as a model of seeking refuge in God from all enemies. An important lesson for post-exilic Israel, isn't it? Book two then shifts the emphasis towards the establishment of God's king and people on Zion. All right, so there's, in book two, we have a sense of, of David as a more secure figure, upheld by Yahweh and installed by Yahweh. But then in book three, there is a noticeable decline of the Davidic dynasty and the nation. Now, what's interesting here is uh, Book 3 begins with Psalm 73. And I just want to draw your attention to the transition here because this is is where you begin to see the breakdown of the Davidic dynasty in terms of the way God had intended for it to function as an extension of his own power. Because in Psalm 72, which is the final psalm of Book 2, we have a prayer for the king. And in this prayer for the king, you get, you get kind of a job description of the king. This is what God envisions the king doing in Israel, right? So listen to this. It's, this is, this is attributed to Solomon or inspired by Solomon, or maybe it was, it was dedicated to Solomon. It's not entirely clear what is meant by of Solomon. But beginning in verse 1, it says, "...give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice." Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. What's the Davidic king supposed to do? What's he supposed to do? Stand up for the the poor, for the voiceless. How's he supposed... What's power for? What has God given the Davidic dynasty power for? Establishing justice... Righting wrongs, defending the defenseless, coming to the aid of the weak, right? That's clearly what, what, we're, what, what, we're, what we're supposed to see here. Now, I want you to look at the first psalm of Book 3, Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph, and I want you to listen to the way he describes Israel here. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of humankind. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? See, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. What was, what was Israel like for the psalmist? <laughs> it was awful, wasn't it? Oppression is running uh, wild. The, uh, the righteous are suffering at the hands of the, of the rich and the powerful. What did we just read in Psalm 72? If the Davidic king is doing his job, this kind of thing is not supposed to happen. And yet we open book three with what? Injustice. And no one doing anything about it, right? This is the first indication I think that we have that with, with book three, the Davidic dynasty has failed to fulfill its covenant obligation to Yahweh. has fulfilled to use power properly. And as a result, by the end of this book, what will happen to the Davidic dynasty in Psalm 89? It will be handed over to David's enemies. And it will no longer be uh, the instrument of divine power among God's people, right? So listen carefully. If God has delegated power to you, for leadership in his kingdom and you abuse that power rest assured it will be taken away and you will cease to function among God's people as an extension of his power because if you don't if you don't exercise God's power in God's way you will not retain it and that's true whether you're a human government or whether you're an elder in the church right so uh, valuable lesson so let's just finish up real quick by talking about what we learned from the Psalms portrait of David. So first first thing that I see as I as I look at these headings, and I look at the way David functions on the Psalter is that genuine worship is born of relinquishing our power and submitting to divine power. Because this is how David really learns to worship. This is how Judah really learns to worship. It's by it's by experiencing powerlessness and having to return to a, to a posture of utter dependence on God. And that's when her worship becomes most sincere, most genuine, most heartfelt, I think, right? Second, David preceded the nation of Judah in experiencing exile and restoration and can therefore serve as a liturgical guide for the community. And that's true for any community that experiences oppression or displacement, expatriation. David has been there, and his reliance on God to get him through those experiences becomes a model for the people of God to do likewise. Thirdly, um, David worshipped in his exiled state as well as in his established state. That's a tough one, isn't it? But this is what David demonstrates for us. When he's on the run from Saul, he's writing psalms. That's how the Psalter portrays him anyway, right? When he's on the run from Saul, he somehow finds the time to compose a psalm. I I don't think I'd do that if I were a fugitive, right? Um... He's portrayed as continuing his habit of worship despite the circumstances, whether he is powerful or powerless. Worship still is his mainstay. Um, Then, uh, fourthly, worship redirects our attention away from human worldly power structures back towards Yahweh's reign. Uh, Which, again, brings us back to the critical role that book four plays, because uh, after Moses intercedes for Israel, the remainder of book four focuses primarily on Yahweh's direct reign over Israel, which is where she has to begin if she's going to once again enter into a healthy understanding of faith and politics and the exercise of power. And then, finally, uh, the worship of the Psalms prepares God's people for Jesus' radical redefinition of power and the church's call to martyrdom. Because if you think about it uh, for just a minute, and um, I'm just going to come over here and illustrate something for you, but if you think about what the Psalms do, um, book one has David rising to power, book two talks about him established in power, book three talks about his decline, Book four talks about his judgment, and book five, which we didn't really get to, talks about his restoration, because in book five, we have a a few psalms that talk about David coming back to power, most famously, of course, Psalm 110, right? Let's let's just take a quick look at Psalm 110 to see, because this psalm is a, a favorite of New Testament authors when it comes to to seeing the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Christ, right? So it says, the Psalm of David, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And, of course, down a little bit further, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, how many times does the New Testament reference this psalm? Several times, right, especially being seated at God's right hand in reference to Jesus's ascension. See, this is Jesus fulfilling the Davidic covenant and reigning forever. Therefore, there does not need to be any dynastic succession because Jesus reigns by the power of an indestructible life. The author of Hebrews says, right? And so as a result, uh, Jesus perfect exercise of power establishes him as the eternal descendant of David who reigns forever on David's throne and thereby fulfills God's obligation to the Davidic covenant without dynastic succession. Brilliant, right? Brilliant way of, of resolving the issue. But the Psalter kind of anticipates that in a way by, by this psalm and some others that, that mention David's restoration to power. But that's kind of how the Psalter portrays David and, and gives David as a model of how the exiles or the post exilic community should, should wrestle with these issues as they wait for this Messiah to come. All right, questions or comments or anything like this? When you said that, you know, while David's on exile, he's writing Psalms. Having come from a very difficult uh Uh, from the the valley of death, okay? We all have it, perhaps. But if there's any hope in that, it's in worshiping the Lord. It's in acknowledging the brokenness. So you go ahead. That's right. And that's what he did. I mean, that was his hope. That's what made it sweet to keep going back. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why the Psalms are so um, attractive and alluring, isn't it? Because we see David. And of course, the Psalms are giving us an artistic and a simplistic portrayal of that. But nonetheless, it's portraying that this, this is someone who never allowed his thoughts to stray far from God when he was in crisis. All right, we're, we're about out of time, so uh, thank you all for your kind attention. I appreciate you coming.